So when I was growing up, there was a day when my mom had set some money on the counter. She had set, it was kind of a lot of money on the counter, and she needed that for something for later. And she came back, and the money was not there. So my brother and my sister and I got interrogated. Um, I, I was probably 10. I think my sister was 7, and my brother was 5, something, somewhere around there. And so, the, you know, the interrogations began, like, tell me the truth. And went, no, no, I promise. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. And, and so after she worked her way through the three of us, she kind of honed in on my brother. My younger brother, five years old, had a knack for doing things he knew he wasn't supposed to and uncannily good at lying, even at a young age. And so she started to bargain with him. And if you've ever bargained with a five-year-old, you'll know that doesn't get you very far. She was saying, Drew, Drew, if you tell me the truth now, you won't get in trouble. Did you take the money? No, Mommy. I did not, you know, so he, he was well rehearsed. And, and so I was the older brother and, and uh, knew better. I had this great idea. So I ran into the room. I got a Bible. I said, Drew, put your hand on the Bible and swear to God that you didn't take the money. And he froze. And then he broke down. He started crying. And I think he said, I don't want to go to hell. <laughs> I mean, kind of, kind of sad, but funny at the same time. A big, big brother uh, victory right there. Um, he took the money. He gave the money back. We didn't have that particular problem again. Uh, but, but it's interesting to think about that story. My family laughs about it now. But if I think about what that says about my view of God at the time, it actually shows that I viewed God as someone who was maybe a little bit more like little kids think about Santa Claus. He was watching my every move, trying to see if I was going to mess up, because if I did, oh, it was, it was coming for me. I think it's easy for us to develop an image of God like that. Um, and you can actually see how that kind of played out in my life. I think for many years, I lived my life like if I disappointed God, ah, that was going to be it. I think I probably also looked down at people who did things that in my mind, that was disappointing God. And I thought, how come they can't get their act together? It was many years before my, my image of God, my understanding of who God is, was corrected. But, but kind of the important principle, the way we view God, or what we believe about God, it, it drastically affects what we think about ourselves and others and how we live our lives. We're in the second week of a sermon series on the parables. The sermon series is called Upside Down, the stories of Jesus that changed the world. And the reason it's called Upside Down is because when Jesus tells parables, a lot of times he is teaching a concept that is counterintuitive to what his audience thought at the time. He's teaching something that's hard to understand, not because his stories are confusing. It's hard to understand because when you've already decided what you believe, and then God shows you that that might be wrong. That's hard to understand. And it's upside down because we don't just want to see when we look at the parable today what's upside down. Uh, we don't just want to read the story. We want to let Jesus' parables come into our own lives and turn our own lives upside down. And so before we look at the parable today, um, would you pray with me? We'll ask God to come and to teach us. Lord God, your word is good, and we trust that you have really, really good things for us in your scriptures today. 
Come and prepare us to hear a word for our own lives. That our understanding of you might need to be turned upside down. That our understanding of how you're calling us to live might need to be turned upside down. So we offer ourselves to you and we say, God, come and teach us. Let this word shape us so that we can know you more. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. For you, God, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we're, we're studying not just one parable today. You're in for a treat. There's three today. And they all teach the same thing. They're really designed to be read all together. So we're going to start in Luke 15, in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. That's Jesus. They were drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he told them this parable. Now before we go on, I just want to, we should learn from the context kind of what's happening. Jesus tells this parable in response to something that's going on. You know, so Jesus at that time, uh, he has a crowd following him. He has a number of different people. He's already called the disciples, but there's others. There's Pharisees and scribes, and maybe the religious people that you might expect would follow a prophet. But then there's tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they seem to have a problem with this. Now, why would they have a problem with this? Well, just for a second, imagine the sinners, they are people who publicly are known to have sin in their lives. They're probably not sorry for it, and they're probably not trying to live a different way. They're still living in that, and it's known publicly. That person is involved in that activity. I don't know who that brings about in your mind. Hopefully there's not a name that comes about, but maybe. Um, But if you think about maybe whoever you think of when I say, who's the riffraff of society? Who is responsible for the moral decay of our society? And whoever you just thought of, imagine they are coming to talk with Jesus. And Jesus doesn't turn them away. He, he's like, come and have a meal with me. And then tax collectors, that, that one's a little bit harder to understand. You know, the scribes and the Pharisees aren't just against taxes, right? That's, that's not why they don't like tax collectors. Tax collectors collected money from everyone in that area. And, and the money went to go pay for the Roman army that was occupying Israel. So they were, they were friends that basically had turned against the Jewish people. And instead of supporting their own people, being a nationalist, they were people that, that said, you know, we're going to work for the enemy that's keeping us oppressed. And we're going to take extra money to pad our own pockets while we're at it. So tax collector was about as low as you could get. They were not allowed near the religious people or near the temple. And the scribes and the Pharisees lived a life where they were used to avoiding these people. Tax collectors and sinners were the people they stayed away from. And the people of God was a community that could insulate them from those people. All right, so let's hear Jesus' response to what the Pharisees and the scribes, uh, you know, they're complaining about him eating with tax collectors and and tax collectors and sinners. Jesus tells this parable, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Now this parable is interesting. Uh, There's a shepherd that loses a sheep. 
he values that sheep so much that he leaves the 99 to go after the one. Now, I've always thought that was irresponsible. I mean, I've always read this and thought, eh, I don't think I would have done that. I'm not a shepherd, but, you know, in reading a commentary, I, I actually understand now the, the audience he was speaking with at that moment, they would have assumed that he left those 99 in good hands. They were not assuming that he left the 99 totally. Like, the parable is not about the 99 don't matter. The parable is about the one does, and the shepherd will go to great lengths to try to find it. And then when he finds it, he throws a big party. And so this is his response to the Pharisees and the scribes, grumbling about the tax collectors and the sinners. Um, Thankfully, Jesus has a kind of an interpretation sentence for us. I love it when Jesus interprets his own parables for us. It makes me even more sure. So right after he tells the parable, imagine he turns to the Pharisees and scribes. That's my own narration. Imagine that, and then he says this. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And I think what he's saying is that God is more excited that the tax collectors and the sinners are coming to have dinner with Jesus than he is that the Pharisees and the scribes don't think they need Jesus. You know, he says, uh, than the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. I think Jesus knows that no one is so good and so perfect on their own that they would never need to repent, to turn from a way of living that is not good and turn towards God. You know, that's what repentance is. I think Jesus knows that no one is above that. I think he's kind of making fun of them, actually, because they don't think they need to repent. Jesus doesn't stop there. Uh, apparently one story is not enough for these guys, so he goes on to another parable. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. We really have the same structure in this story. We have something uh, that gets lost. We see that it, it must have great value for the person that lost it because they go after it. This lady's tearing the house apart to find the coin, right? Kind of like when we lose our car keys or something, and it's not an option to just go buy a new car key or replace it. And then when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together to celebrate, just like the shepherd did when he found that sheep. And again, Jesus uh, gives us a helpful word on what he's trying to teach the Pharisees and scribes. He says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I think Jesus is speaking to the heart of God. He's trying to show them that God gets excited when someone who is far off gets brought back, brought back near. Now, this, this is so challenging to the Pharisees. I mean, they have lived their whole life trying to protect themselves from those who have sinned. They have lived their whole lives trying to follow the law so much, they even came up with, uh, with an extra amount of rules to protect them from getting too close to breaking the rules. And so Jesus is teaching this, and it's hard for them. Now, I think at the core of it, though, it comes down to something they believe about God. I think the Pharisees and scribes believe this, that God loves those who are good and he immediately judges those who are bad. 
I think that's the root kind of belief about God that the Pharisees and scribes had. And I think that, that, that really changes how they live and how they see themselves and others. Because they believe that God only loves you if you're good, then they also believe that every person has to live up to a certain standard in order to be accepted by God. And so the, here, we, you know, they tried to follow the rules so much, they were more worried, though, about how that appeared, both to others and to God. So that's just why Jesus calls them hypocrites, because they would do things that appeared very holy, but Jesus knew on the inside they had a bunch of stuff that was undealt with sin. They were ignoring it. They were trying to push it down to cover up what was really true about themselves, to make themselves look really good. And it all goes back to this view that they had of who God is, right? But it's not just that. It also changes their belief about the community of faith. They believe that the community of faith exists to protect themselves and others from an unclean world. They saw that their fellow Jewish people, their religious activities at the temple, that was all there so that they could huddle together and not be polluted by the dirty ones. And so they can't get over that. And Jesus is trying to teach them something very different. He's not just trying to teach them that they should think that the community of faith works differently. And he's not just trying to teach them that they should view themselves differently at the core. Jesus is trying to teach them that God might be different than what they think God is like. See, the upside down concept that Jesus teaches to them is that God does not stop loving those who are lost, but he seeks to recover them. That when someone sins against God, God doesn't turn his back on them and say, well, you blew it too bad. Instead, God moves closer to see if he can find them and help them get back. That that's the heart of God. And if you extrapolate that out, if that's the heart of God, that he has a heart for the lost, then what Jesus would like them to believe about themselves is that every person is lost and needs to repent and be found by God. No one's above having something in them that is just not going so well. Um, and the goal is not to put on this front where we look like we have our lives together. The goal is to find those places where we need God to come in and change us still. And we say, all right, God, I'm going to try to give that part of my life to you also. You know, if the Pharisees and scribes, scribes believed that, they would have been seeing themselves as next to the tax collectors and the sinners instead of seeing themselves as above the tax collectors and the sinners. And then finally, if God is not a God that walks away from those who, who turn their back on him, but if God's a God that does not stop loving those who are lost, he continues to seek them, then we would have to believe that the community of faith does not exist to uh, be this place of protection where it protects us from the world. But the community of faith is a people that are called to be sent out to be a part of God seeking those who are lost. The Pharisees just can't get their heads around that though. And so partly because I think it's a hard thing that he's trying to teach them, but partly because I think he wants to show them a more personal story, he tells them one more parable. He said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. 
And so uh, the younger son in those times would have gotten half of what the older son got. The older son, because he was responsible for taking care of the family for the rest of his life, he would get a double inheritance. Lucky me, I was the oldest, if, if only that was still true, right? But the younger son here comes to his father. He asks for his inheritance before his dad dies. It's kind of like he's saying, Dad, I wish you were dead, but because you're not, could you just give me that life insurance policy that's coming to me? I mean, it really is such an offensive thing to ask. Can you imagine your own kid doing that or you doing that to your own parents? It, I mean, that's pretty awful. Um, the father loves his son a lot, and it's, it's kind of amazing. He, he gives his son the property that, is, that, it, that would have been his when he inherits it. And it's not, you know, he doesn't go to the bank or pull out a whole life insurance policy and just give him the cash. He doesn't write him a check. He's giving him, like, herds and material goods and uh, stuff that he got from the farm. I mean, it's probably stuff that the father needed to live on for the rest of his life, and he's still willing to give it to his son. So then, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. So uh, he flies to Vegas, and after a few weeks, he's broke. And you can guess what he spent his money on. I mean, yeah, he, he, he spends it on things that are selfish pleasures, that are not worthwhile endeavors. Part of why I think this uh, parable is more challenging is that I don't have a very hard time feeling sorry for the lost sheep. Um, I don't have a very hard time feeling sorry for the lost coin, although I don't have a lot of feelings towards the coin. But I have a hard time feeling sorry for this son. He totally got himself into this mess. You can't really blame anyone else. He made bad decisions. And Jesus continues to teach this story to the Pharisees. He explains that after the son goes broke, he, he gets hired on by a pig farmer. He becomes a servant of a pig farmer to feed the pigs. It's about the lowest you can get as a young Jewish man. Because pigs were unkosher, they were unclean, and, and they made him unclean. They were a stain on his life. And as he is the servant of the pig farmer, he's feeding the pigs, he's realizing these pigs eat better than me. And come to think of it, my father's servants ate better than I ate. Maybe, just maybe, I need to rethink this. So his rethinking this involves him acknowledging, you know, there's no way that my dad would take me back. I have done something far too heinous, far too offensive and dishonorable to be accepted back as a son. But maybe, just maybe, if I begged on my knees, he would take me back as a servant. He says, that's what I'll do. And he concocts this plan that he's going to go back to his father's house. The father who he is basically wished that he was dead, took his stuff, left and blew it on a bunch of selfish pleasures. And he's going to go ask his dad to take him back in, not as a son, but just as a servant. And, uh, and so here's how that goes. <clears throat> he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, and the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. 
and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So I can only imagine this infuriated the Pharisees and the scribes. Why didn't that son get what he sowed? Why did, why did he get accepted back? That's not how God works. But remember, Jesus is turning upside down something that they think they know. And he's saying, the God that is really God, he is a lot more merciful than you've been imagining him to be. You know, at the other parables have <clears throat> a sentence to interpret at the bottom, like a, to remind us kind of what the point is. But this one actually doesn't have that sentence. Instead of a sentence, it has a whole nother story, which is kind of funny. So it's like the bonus parable. You're going to get a fourth parable. Uh, basically, the older son wasn't there when the, when the younger son came back. So we saw the father's reaction. The father welcomes him with open arms. He runs to the son. That was a dishonorable thing. In a Middle Eastern culture, an older man would not run to a son, especially one that had dishonored him in that way. But he loves him that much. The older son, however, he has, he has an issue. He hears about what happens, and then it says this. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. So he, he, he's refusing to go to the party because he's still got a grudge against his younger brother. And who wouldn't, right? You couldn't blame him for that too bad. So his father came out, and he entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, notice he didn't say my brother, this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and now is found. And that's where the parable ends. Remember, Jesus is speaking this parable because the scribes and the Pharisees are grumbling. He's speaking it so they can hear this. And at this point, this is a challenge to ask them, are they going to keep being like the older brother? The older brother is the righteous one that needed no repentance, right? He's saying God doesn't get excited about the righteous one who is so good on their own that they're self-righteous. God gets excited about the one that is far off, that comes to their senses and realizes, man, I was much better off with God. And is accepted back because God is a graceful and merciful God. And he never stops pursuing those even those that walk away from him. So I don't, I don't think the Pharisees <clears throat> and the scribes got it. I mean, I, I, the only reason I say that is because they had him crucified a few chapters later. I really, I really don't think they got it. But I wonder, I wonder what it would look like if we were to get it. If we were to have our understanding of God corrected maybe we need a little bit of correcting maybe you're like me and you believe that good people go to heaven when you die but where the truth is people that are found by Jesus go to heaven 
Uh, the goal is not to be so good that you earn your way to God. The goal is to realize that you need Jesus and to let him find you. No matter how bad you, you have done, no matter where you are, it's never too late. It is, God does not stop loving you. This isn't like a new thing Jesus is teaching in just in chapter 15 either. In chapter 5, he says, uh, this is in response to Jesus asking a tax collector to be one of his 12 disciples. And he defends that decision by saying, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. How often do we see the goal of the Christian life is to make sure that we're a good Christian and we do everything right, when in reality, I think what Jesus is inviting us to is to examine our lives and to say, man, Jesus, I still need you in this part. And then in this part, I am still pretty far from the mark. And so, I, but I, I want help, but I need you, Jesus, to remember that Jesus doesn't walk away from us, but he's, he's waiting for us to come to him and bring that part of our life to him so he can accept us back and throw a party. There's another part where Jesus says this. He says, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out har laborers into his harvest. He doesn't say the world's dangerous, so never go out into it. That's not what he says. He doesn't say, protect yourself at all costs and only hang out with church people because everyone else will ruin you. That, that's not what Jesus says. He says that there is a harvest out there and he needs his people to be sent out into the harvest. But part of our job as the people of God at Bethany, a big part of it, is to be a part of God seeking those who are far from him in Austin, Texas and loving them back to Jesus. That's part of what we're called to. Um, someone, I was reading a book uh, earlier this week, and I came across this quote, and it's a, uh, it kind of makes you think. Uh, it's by Archbishop William Temple. It says, The church is the only society that exists for the benefit of those who are not its members. That's kind of crazy, isn't it? We are not a part of this church so that it can be just good for us. We're a part of this church. We worship together. We grow together so we can be sent out to offer God to others. Um, I, had, um, I heard a great story about this that I want to just share with you before, before we finish tonight. Uh, there was a Bethany member, um, <clears throat> and I want to keep it nameless, but a Bethany member who visits uh, an older homebound person that used to be in some way connected to Bethany. And I don't even know the connection, but they visit this, this uh, elderly person weekly. Um, they have developed a relationship over the last couple years, and earlier this year, they came to a place where this, this, this elderly person uh, was so angry at their life situation and all the different things that had happened in their life, uh, they started to tell the Bethany member how much they did not believe that God existed. They wanted to make a point that I don't, I don't think God really exists, and if he did, he's an evil God. Now, I've never... I would never believe in the God that you believe in. It's kind of an interesting thing for someone to bring up. There's obviously some hard feelings there. Um, sometimes as those who love God, when we hear someone say that, it's hard to hear. I mean, it's hard for a couple reasons, right? Like it hurts us because we love God, but it also hurts us because we know that that person must be hurting so bad. And in situations like that, it would be really easy to just say, you know what? 
that's fine. Like, you're entitled to your own opinion and your own beliefs. I'm not going to push on that. And, um, man, maybe we're just, maybe we aren't compatible for hanging out. It would be really easy to say that and to go spend your time with someone else in a nursing home that maybe would appreciate that someone from church is coming to love on you and to hang out with you. And I was talking to this person about it, and they decided they, maybe God had put them there just for that purpose. So they didn't stop spending time with this person. They, they, they were more intentional about it. They still went every week to spend time with this person, but they would get people to pray for them whenever they went. That, God, would you please come give me a chance to love this person with the love you have for them, to know, for them to know that you don't give up on them. They kept at it. They kept at it. Um, I want you to know it was firmly based in a relationship. But because of this relationship, they came to a point one day where this elderly person was, was again going off about all the horrible things that had happened. And the Bethany member was able to say, you know what, I know you think that God stopped loving you, but that's not what happened. God has never stopped loving you. And I am proof of that because he has sent me here to love you. And he's never going to give up on you. And they were so nervous saying that even. They didn't know, maybe, was that burning the bridge where it was all going to be over? You know, the person looked at them and they said, really? So this Bethany member continued, yes, and I know Jesus is never going to give up on you because uh, he's shown me that he wants me to keep coming and, and loving you because he loves you. That person asked some questions. They talked about it. And the end of the conversation, which I'm not going to ever forget, was, that's interesting. I think I'm going to need to rethink this Jesus thing a little more. It, so it's still in process, right? Like, God's still at work. We don't know. And it's not up to us to say, is the person a Christian or not? Like, that's not the question we're asking. Uh, that's just a story about a time when someone from our own church was sent out by God to go to someone who felt very far from God. And they were able to share that God has not given up on them. And so, as we think about our own lives, who is it that God may have put in your life that might be far from him? Maybe a friend or a neighbor. Maybe someone in your own family. Uh, you don't have to go really far. Honestly, there's people all over the place that are far from God. Sometimes they have a great front too, kind of like the Pharisees and the scribes. They were the ones that were really furthest from God in that story, right? But behind that front is so much brokenness that someone doesn't know how to deal with because they believe God's just going to judge them the second they bring it up. When in reality, we serve a God who never stops loving us, who never stops pursuing us. So the challenge that I'd like to, to issue for this week for you, who is it that God might be calling you to love more because they are far from God and they need to know that God's not given up on them? Would you pray with me? God, help us to digest your word and help us to be challenged by it. God, give us the grace we need to live into these parables and this teaching that you've given us, Jesus. Help us remember how much you love people and even those that have turned their back on you, God. 
that we would remember you don't turn your back on them, but you pursue them because you love them. God, help us to not feel like we have to hide our imperfections from you. But help us to have a right view of you as a merciful God where we can bring our real selves to you and let you mold us and accept us and love us to be more like Christ. And God, help us to develop compassion for those around us, especially those who are far from you, that we could be your people sent out on your mission in the world. Come and fill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord. We need you. Amen.